You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, it's a bit nippy out there. It's begun to be nippy all over again. But, uh, of course, if you're being COVID safe, you may not have been outside. Uh, the uh, Today, we're going to have a look at a variety of issues. I thought I'd follow up on the uh, issue of COVID. I mean, not that uh, everybody isn't bathed in COVID at the moment, but uh, it's a sort of a, an issue of um, looking at it in a sort of a sane way, uh, we're going to hear from Dr. Noor Barry. She is an immunologist who has, in the past, despite her young voice, has uh, uh, been involved in uh, looking at uh, 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 the uh, public health response to uh, viruses such as AIDS, uh, tuberculosis and SARS and is at the moment working in a hospital in uh, Sydney uh, in the uh, fight against um, COVID. Uh, and uh, it's pleasing to hear from someone who's so experienced uh, around the practical nature of dealing with a virus that is so... Uh, um, damaging, uh, and framing it as a public health issue rather than this inflammatory uh, discussion about economics over and above public health when, you know, a cut before the horse. So I thought this might be a bit soothing to actually hear it from a a practical point of view because uh, we do know at heart Australians are practical. Um, Hopefully that's not just me uh, jumping to conclusions. Later on, um, we're going to have a yarn with Matt Kunkel. He's from the Migrant Workers Centre. Uh, you might have heard at uh, one of the endless uh, press conferences given by Dan Andrews and uh, his team, uh, the first part of it's generally very uh, fact-filled, but uh, the uh, second part is usually lots of questions uh, from the journalists, and sometimes it's a little bit hard to uh, sit the distance, but it's always worthwhile because there's these gems, and part of the uh, one of the gems during the week was uh, this uh, assignment by Little Proud, love the name Little Proud, it's such a perfect moniker for such a little man, Uh, the Federal Minister who uh, is trying to jibe uh, Dan Andrews into opening borders or, you know, business as usual type stuff. Uh, And what he was talking about was uh, that the... um, uh, uh, People down in Gippsland, farmers down in Gippsland were uh, missing out on their usual seasonal workers from the Pacific Islands. And, uh, 
it's a, a visa system apparently where people from the Pacific Islands come regularly to work on these farms. Uh, Dan Andrew pointed out that uh, Australia has a part to play in making Pacific Islands safe and so I thought I'd pursue this uh, rather as the federal government's uh, need to actually uh, raise its game not just within Australia, but as a uh, benevolent uh, neighbour, useful neighbour to Pacific Islanders, especially if we are involved in a uh, visa system for seasonal workers. So I thought I'd find out a little bit more about that. I found that fascinating. Um, Another practical way of dealing with COVID rather than this inflammatory way that uh, it's been spoken about. We're going to talk to Chris Breen. Uh, Chris Breen is... um, from uh, uh, RAC, Refugee Action Collective. Uh, They were going to have a rally on um, Sunday, but of course COVID's put that uh, aside, but they're going to have an online rally on Sunday at 2pm. So we're going to find out who the speakers are and uh, if you want to come along, uh, what uh, you need to do. We're going to follow that up with uh, Janet uh, Burstall. This is all assuming everything, this is live radio and assuming everything happens as it's supposed to. We're going to talk to Janet Burstall. Um, she is from Life, Living Income for Everyone. And they're doing this very novel thing because that's what they do. They're going to have a uh, an alternative press conference on Tuesday, the 31st of August online, 2, two o'clock to 2.30 p.m. The idea is to uh, make a presentation that uh, uh, shows the hidden story and uh, for workers that is being denied by government and employers and uh, putting the worker in the centre of the conversation uh, rather than uh, constant uh, nagging about uh, the profits of business owners. Uh, But uh, uh, before we do... We're going to. Uh, there's a couple of things that one should be aware of, you know, because uh, there has been um, a lot of um, angst regarding COVID. Uh, it's important to uh, do activism uh, in other ways, and uh, just because we've got a pandemic on doesn't mean that uh, the various rather unsavoury things aren't going on at, uh, at the same time. Probably some good things are going on at the same time, uh, hopefully. But uh, one of them is that the Adani uh, mine up in uh, Queensland is progressing and uh, the Wangan and Jagaligu people, who are the uh, First Nations uh, land owners uh, there, uh, are calling for the um, Queensland Environment Minister to request an urgent stop work order on a dining coal mine until an independent investigation into groundwater impacts on the Dugmagula Springs is done. Now, these uh, uh, scientists have said that uh, there is uh, definitely a cause for concern, but their urgent calls to protect the springs have so far gone unheeded. The cultural rights of Indigenous peoples are enshrined in the Queensland Human Rights Act, yet the Queensland Government is still allowing Adani to destroy precious Wangan and Jagaligu cultural heritage without free, prior and informed consent. Uh, and uh, they are going to have an action uh, the uh, Stop Adani team are having a, an action which they're calling people to a um, 
to respond to. They're, they're having an online rally on the Sunday um, uh, to preempt an on Monday morning uh, uh, rally in Brisbane because, of course, they can um, to try and uh, push... Uh, the government in the right direction. They are not going to stop. Uh, so if you want more information about that, uh, Stop Adani website will give you the update on what you need to do if that is something that you have been following in particular. Now, the other thing came out of MELS, which is uh, <clears throat> our uh, fabulous uh, legal um, uh, right, uh, legal team. That uh, MELS is a group of people that actually... Um, uh, devote themselves. I mean, they're legal practitioners, but they're uh, in the uh, business of uh, alerting people to uh, issues of um, uh, civil rights, effectively. And uh, part of their newsletter they've just put out, um, uh, they've pointed out that... uh, on Wednesday, the 25th of August, 2021, Parliament, Federal Parliament, passed the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identifying Disrupt Bill 2020, giving the Australian Federal Police, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, and by extension, the Australian Signals Directorate, the power to spy domestically. The bill creates three new warrants with the proposed purpose of targeting inverted commas serious and organised crime that utilise atomizing technologies online. Now, uh, the three warrants, data disruption warrants, which allow the AFP and the ACIC or another person on the law enforcement officer's behalf the, and of course, we all know there's lots of outsource going um, going on. The ability to add, copy, delete, or alter files on a get a load of this. Add, copy, delete, or alter files on a computer or device so as to, in inverted commas, frustrate the commission of crime, where a law enforcement officer reasonably suspects that one or more relevant offences are being are about to be or are likely to be committed. The next warrant, change network activity warrants, which allow agencies to collect intelligence. This is in inverted commas. Allow uh, agencies to collect intelligence on serious criminal, criminal activity being conducted by criminal networks by intercepting communications and using surveillance devices on computer networks, the AFP and the ACIC are permitted to do anything reasonably necessary to conceal their access and modify to co- modification to computers, allowing the warrant to be conducted covertly. This is available where there is a reasonable suspicion that monitoring the network activity of a criminal network of individuals is relevant to the prevention, detection or frustration of one or more kind of relevant offences. And then account takeover warrants, which provide agencies with the ability to take control of a person's online account through the modification of data for the purposes of gathering evidence to further a criminal investigation. Now, 
Mel's is concerned that this language captures offences with a federal aspect that has been levelled at activists in the past and hence would trip off and the low threshold to use such warrants against activists in order to identify and disrupt their activities. For example, anti-war activists that have staged protests on the Pine Gap surveillance facility in Alice Springs over the past decades would be subject to the warrants because the actions took place on Commonwealth land and the offences levelled at them attracted maximum sentences of seven years. It's a serious offence. Similar circumstances apply to anti-war groups that have protested on military bases or refugee activists who have protested in the parliament where Commonwealth land and all property is an aspect of the charges brought against the activists and the sentencing times are likewise. Now get a load of this. Anti-mining and climate action groups would be eligible for identification and disruption with the bill because they oppose critical infrastructure projects and may be considered a criminal network of individuals or that they are electronically linked group of individuals that have potential to cause substantial loss or damage to critical infrastructure or property. Anyway, it goes on and on. So MELS, M-A-L-E-L-S, our fighters for right and justice in the legal field for activists. You can find them online. All a bit disturbing. Ha! There you go. The things that happen when COVID's about. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. There's something strange about that ad. When a little child says, I'm looking forward to my family members coming back to the sports day. I mean, you know, whatever happened to, I'm looking forward to my family coming. (laughs) Too many words. Too much strangeness going on. Anyway, uh, as I said, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're going to go straight to uh, Dr. Noor Barry. As I said, she's an immunologist and uh, this is purely as a way of uh, settling fears around COVID and placing it in its context as a public health uh, issue, which is really important to remember. Um, So... First of all, how did we lose COVID? Um, COVID is an airborne disease and it travels like smoke, exactly like smoke. And we didn't recognise that. Um, We didn't recognise that, of course, a novel virus that's just skipped out of wherever it came from is going to evolve to get to know us better and become more transmissible. This is a natural selection advantage. We should have anticipated that. 
we didn't understand that sometimes it transmits loads and sometimes it never transmits at all. So just because you didn't see the effect of your intervention doesn't mean it's not going to work when you need it. And that's why we didn't recognise the value of early lockdowns. Um, and that just became a political football when it should never have been. It's a simple strategy. Um, we should have never had done that with that particular one. Um, we didn't react with urgency, not enough urgency to the threats. I think there's some level of getting too comfortable with this virus. It's, you know, it's a rapidly transmissible disease that really can cause long-term effects. I, I think that if you don't recognize that threat and you don't prepare for it adequately, you don't recognize what it's going to do to your economy, your people, their health, their social life, everything is interrupted by COVID and it has interrupted the world. Um, so we didn't prepare for this threat adequately. So we didn't um, we weren't fast enough with our vaccine program. We didn't diversify it enough. We haven't built the quarantine that we need. And we haven't even started thinking about the vehicles that we should be transporting these people to and from quarantine in because our drivers are being exposed and they don't need to be. I'm sure we can build a vehicle that does not involve driver and occupants in the same car, you know. Um, so that's how we lost it. What is zero COVID? It's really important that... Um, we don't radicalize zero COVID. Zero COVID is actually just normal public health. We're not expecting zero COVID all the time in the community. But what we really want to see is a really, really focused effort. And I think that using the number zero as a target focuses the mind, focuses the resources and brings the community together around something that is fairly easy to understand. And that is that when COVID turns up in the community, it's a threat to us all and that we have to do something about it. And that basically we want to do something about it until it's not a threat to us anymore, that there's a low risk of resurgence. And when we make decisions about this, we need to make it taking into account how to do it humanely, kindly, but effectively, so that we can all have what we need, which is our health and our freedom to go about our business and um, be with each other and connect with each other again. So Zero COVID Australia basically wants to use science as the core to tackle this health problem and community strength, essentially. So airborne mitigations, surveillance restraints and ring fencing and border controls. These are not new things. They were part of the pandemic plan and we'll come to that. So can we get to zero COVID? So at the moment, we've got a new strain we're feeling uncertain because it's new and it seems to be highly transmissible and worse, basically. Um, and when you talk about zero COVID in this environment, people um, are so angry and so upset and so sad that sometimes it's really, really difficult to even say the word zero without immediately having them shut down on you because you can't imagine it right now. Things are just getting worse and worse. And if you think that things, the hospitals will be overwhelmed, I can tell you that the hospitals were on the border of overwhelm before we ever even had COVID. Um, and our leadership is quite clearly looking in the direction of not having zero COVID. And my experience with any of these kind of issues around the world is that it appears that, you know, the the situation goes exactly where you point it. And if you point it as we're going to live with the virus, and that's exactly what we're going to do, and it's going to be really, really challenging. So how did we get to zero COVID in the first place? You know, that's important to look at because 
you know, we want to get there again. How do we do it? We use stay-at-home orders. We use test, trace, and isolate. Those were the two key ones, I think, that really, really made the difference. There were also other issues like social distancing, hand washing, etc., cetera, um, which may have played a part, but it's kind of hard to quantify. And we didn't really plan for it. It just sort of happened because we did what it said in the textbook. We did our public health thing, and that's what got us to where we wanted to go, despite the fact that um, a lot of people said that it was never going to work. Have we ever tried to eliminate something before? Well, apparently we're still trying to eliminate stuff all over the place. Here is a tuberculosis plan, which is current um, as of last year. And it says we're going towards elimination. Now, TB is actually a really difficult um, disease to catch the tail of because people can have it for donkey's years and they can carry it around. They can have no symptoms. And then suddenly one day they're coughing up TB. You know, that's a really tricky one. That can sleep in your system for 20, 30 years. And we still try to do something about that. So I think that... To say that we're not going to be able to eliminate disease ever and not aiming for it is unfair in the COVID situation because we have aimed for it for other serious diseases before. And COVID is a serious disease. It's going to be a multi-system disease. Okay, so public health is a group effort. It's about other people. It's not just about myself and what I can do to protect me. It's about everybody. And if you start cutting the lines between who's compliant, who's not compliant, who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, and othering people like saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter because they had comorbidities or, you know, well, you know, so-and-so can't stick to the rules, they don't really understand them or whatever. If you other people and you don't make a strategy that is going to be inclusive of everyone, it is going to fail because we live in a world with other people. And that is what public health is about. We don't drive our car safely and stick to the speed limits and everything purely for ourselves it's also for other people and that's what it's all about it's about yourself and others and this takes a group effort there's no point setting policy that says you do this and you get vaccinated and you wear a mask if you feel like it or don't wear a mask if you don't feel like it that's not going to work we've got to do this together um here are some interesting uh historical documents um one of them is still in process so this is the pandemic influenza plan for the country and the New South Wales state. Um, And it quite clearly says that, you know, what to do with airborne diseases and precautions. So it's not like we didn't know what to do. We didn't need to draw up last minute plans and make everything different just for COVID. We knew exactly what to do and we've always known exactly what to do. Um, These plans were made in partnership with WHO um, and they have been around for decades. This is our current infection control resource. It's really, really good. And I I thoroughly recommend anyone um, that wants to find out about how to control COVID to have a look at this website. It is designed for healthcare, but I am a firm believer that healthcare is, you know, apart from some building engineering issues, healthcare in terms of the practical day-to-day and how people interact and how people use things and, you know, education, learning, I think it's not that different from the rest of the world. You know, we're still people. We still get taught stuff. We still get checked that we have done it right. You know, these are the same processes that you can do in any workplace. And I'm hoping that soon over the next few weeks or months or even sooner, if possible, we can make guidance like this that's suitable for businesses everywhere. There are a few um, things that we should be doing. So we should be looking at the route of transmission and how we can um, reduce that. So the airborne disease spread needs to be addressed now. We can't ignore it anymore. We've been putting off that homework for too long. Um, we need to do what we're already doing in terms of reducing movement, staying at home. We can use rapid tests to start looking at cases in the community now because 
Um, rapid tests do have issues in terms of picking up false positives. So you can't use them when you've only got one or two cases necessarily. But when you've got populations at risk or bigger outbreaks like we have now, rapid tests are absolutely the way forward and we should all have some in our cupboard by now. Um, mass pool testing is another technique that can be used together with sewage surveillance. So if you know that sewage has come up positive somewhere, you can actually get samples from everybody. But instead of running a separate PCR for each person and using up all those resources, you can actually test them in batches so that you know roughly where it is and then go back and look again in those areas if you need to. Um, and in the meantime, obviously having the safety of a lockdown in that area if you need to. So that's another issue. Um, Although when you've got a widespread outbreak like this, really, and and personally for me, I think for Delta, a, a more uniform standard, easy to understand instructions works better for most of the population. So if you start hard, keep it simple, that does help a lot more. But this this can actually pinpoint where your problem is. Um and then we need to decrease the spread of the outbreak growth. So can we do that? That's the question. You know, people want to know, can we do that? Um so I think. Everyone, when they get into a really scary situation, they're looking for lifeboats. They're looking for lifeboats. And, and some of our um, leaders have jumped onto the lifeboat of, well, you know, it was going to go this way anyway. And that's their, their way out, their door, out of the house on fire. Um, and I sometimes wonder if whether um, some people might think, well, you know, are you hanging on to zero COVID for, as your sort of comfort blanket, your lifeboat? Um, and... Something that doctors do is that we think about the acceptability of a treatment plan. So a pandemic plan is like a treatment plan for lots of people um, and whether or not it's it's worthwhile, whether the patient would like that, whether it's futile, you know, these kind of questions go through our mind. Um, and my my point is, is that I don't think a population like Australia, which is so enthusiastic to participate in public health, I think that they would find the following interventions practical, acceptable, um, and I think that they'd be really, really pleased to have something to do that will work um, to reduce the spread of this horrible disease. So the first one is using HEPA filters can reduce the amount of aerosol in the air by up to 90%. That's a huge cleaning power, and we need people to know about this. If your place that you're working doesn't have adequate ventilation, this is a great piece of equipment to add that, you know, it's just a little portable box. It's the same one that you would have bought to deal with bushfires or pollen or anything else. Um, there's loads and loads of resources on COVID is airborne website on how to size them properly. So you get enough cleaning power, etc. They can be put into workplaces. Now they can be put into hospitals. Now they can be put into schools because we still have children in schools right now as we speak. Um, that need to be protected. So this is a great piece of kit that can reduce the amount of infectious stuff in the air by 90% um, when you combine it with the use of a normal mask, not a respirator, okay? So that's really, really good cleaning power. This is an amazing study that was done in a hospital, but I think normal people can probably do it as well because we are normal people in hospitals. They did everything the same except start using fitted respirators. Nothing else changed. Their vaccination didn't change. That you know, where they're working didn't change. The type of patients they're working with didn't change. And usually what happened was the people working with the COVID patients were 47 times more likely to get COVID than the people working with the non-COVID patients. All they did was change to a respirator and they got rid of that excess risk. That is incredible protection power for workers everywhere. 
and I think that this is one of the wonderful studies done in the last year that has finally gone to the bottom of whether this stuff works or not. So last year, um, we had a large-ish COVID outbreak uh, by Australian standards, and we had lots of healthcare workers getting sick. Two things have changed between last year and this year. In New South Wales, they have allowed healthcare workers to use respirators. No, not every part of the hospital is using it, but certainly the high-risk parts, the red zones, the emergency departments, the ICUs, um, anyone in contact with known COVID patient that hasn't been screened yet is definitely using it. And others do have a somewhat variable access to it as well, depending on supplies. So last year we had... 97 healthcare worker infections acquired at work and 46 from an unknown source. And this was using the old guidelines, the old ICAG surgical mask guidelines um, and not vaccinated. The vast majority of the workers in that outbreak were actually acquiring their infections at work. Now, I can't tell you how bad the gaslighting is when it comes to workers and getting infected at work. We were told in healthcare for so long that we were getting out of home and bringing it into work. Well, how did it get into our homes, you know? And this is exactly what is going on right now with all other types of workers. Like healthcare workers have gotten over this bump, but the rest of the population who are also just experiencing the same thing um, are being told it's at home or you're getting it from somewhere else. No, no, people are getting it at work because during a lockdown, that's where they are. They're either at work or they're at home. And, and as I said, the use of respirators is somewhat patchy. The use of ventilation is, you know, it's being done, but it's not uniform between different buildings and things. So we've still made a huge, huge reduction in the amount of people being infected through a combination of getting those workers vaccinated and giving them better masks. So here you see that there's a sevenfold reduction in transmission when some proportion of the workforce is vaccinated and they're using the right respirators and ventilation has been you know as best as we can you can see also here i've got a little quote from lynn gilbert um from back then she was strongly opposed to giving healthcare workers masks because she felt that if we didn't wear them perfectly that we couldn't get any uh benefit from them but actually you don't have to wear them it's good to wear them perfectly don't get me wrong but if normal people fitting them in normal ways can still give you a benefit over and above wearing a surgical mask or a loose cloth mask and if you get them fit tested, which is what every worker is entitled to, to be safe at their workplace, get them fit tested, you get even more protection. So this is something that's really, really important that every worker should have. Vaccination, look, it's very, very important. It's going to save loads of lives. We should get vaccinated if we can, everyone that can should. Um, and when it's your turn, please, please do. But it's just going to be a little bit too slow to avoid the disaster. We're actually already working under surge plans we call them but what is a surge plan it's essentially a disaster right so we're in a disaster already in healthcare so we need to move faster than this there are some sort of measurements early measurements saying you know how much we can reduce the transmission of delta with vaccines but it's no by no means a real you know done deal that we definitely know what's going on there and it's probably going to be less than with alpha and the other variants so we need more, more than just vaccines to get through this, to avert a massive, massive disaster in New South Wales. Um, and we have to bear in mind that whatever we're doing, we're locked into this road until people can get their second dose and the second dose has had time to work. That's an awful long time to hold out when we're doubling every 11 to 12 days. So, you know, we have to do something else. 
Um, can we give people in the community respirators? What are they going to do with it if we give it to them? Well, apparently people do just fine. Okay. Other countries have tried it. It's depending on the styles. There are many, many new designs of respirators for community use. Um, some of them are more acceptable than the types that we use in healthcare. They're less painful. They fit better. Um, there's so much more we can do. And I think this is a message that we just need to get out to people everywhere that the fit that not having a gap around the edge is so important now with Delta. It is just everything relies on that, um, as well as the filtration. But the fit, 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 and comfort so that you actually wear it. There's no point giving young people, especially a mask that is uncomfortable, they cannot wear it. So comfort, fit, and filtration all need to be better in our masks now. We're not going to, like last year, I fought the whole year for cloth masks for everyone, but now we've just got to step it up. Ventilation. Everyone thinks ventilation is just totally impossible. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this little gizmo here is the carbon dioxide monitor that I use. It's literally a box with a number on the front. It is not complicated. It's a nice big number. You look at it. It's less than 800. You feel somewhat reassured that your ventilation is working well. We've been doing it for centuries and centuries. Um, Florence Nightingale has done amazing observational studies on how ventilation affects the transmission of disease in multiple diseases. She was an absolutely um, an amazing and inspiring research a scientist. Ventilation, it's like if a fish is in a tank, you're changing the water out, you're getting fresh water in, okay? Um, and when you can't get fresh water in or between water changes, you, for a fish tank, you would use the little pump filter. Well, for people as well, you can use those HEPA filters to supplement your ventilation in areas that aren't getting good enough ventilation. Or if it's impossible, like we have bushfires coming up, um, it's going to get really, really hard to do just ventilation. So you use filtration because you, you're not going to be able to open the windows soon. Does it work? Well, yes, it does. Victoria Lush, they did an amazing uh, piece of work looking at how spacing out patients so that there's less source of virus is really, really useful and how they increased um, the fresh air and how that helped. Um, and they also changed masks as well and how that all helped disease transmission. So this is not purely a hospital thing. Again, it, this could be applied anywhere, spacing people out to reduce the source, getting better ventilation, getting better masks. That's what we need to do. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Hey, Aaron, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. I just thought it would be worthwhile being a bit more positive and contained rather than politically uh, uh, motivated when it comes to a public health emergency. You know, get centred. Be aware that there are actual ways of dealing with workplace uh, COVID transmission. And um, on the line, I've got uh, Matt Kunkel from the uh, Migrant Worker Centre. G'day, Matt. How are you? Good, thanks, Annie. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. And um, the reason why I wanted to talk to you was because... We all sit in our little houses or uh, if we've got a house uh, or a place to live, uh, unaware that uh, actually there's a whole lot of uh, visa workers and migrant workers who are here or prop up our system of agriculture. And um, I was particularly interested in the push by the uh, federal government to try and make out that uh, Victoria has got such tough uh, COVID restrictions going on that farmers in Gippsland couldn't get their usual seasonal workers from the Pacific. But there's more to it, isn't there? It goes all the way back to the very start of the pandemic in Australia when 
Scott Morrison and others told temporary visa holders just to go home. Um, and while many of them kind of stayed as long as they possibly could and did so without any support from the federal government, um, many of them now have one home, including a lot of those working holiday makers or backpackers that, that do spend a lot of time up in the regions picking out fruit. Um, and we've seen a, a wide range of you know calls from industry that there's not enough people to pick fruit, that you know farmers are ploughing crops back into the fields. Um, and now there's a number of things the government's trying to do um, in a rush and in a hurry because of their actions of 2020 and, and even ignoring this kind of crisis beforehand. So there's a couple of things, but I, I think what we're seeing here is another example of blame shifting from the federal government to the state governments around the country um, because both of these things could have been fixed um, if the federal government had have taken a different approach in 2020. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Dan Andrews pointed out a really practical thing because everything's been uh, made inflammatory and uh, freakish because of COVID. But he, he pointed out that if uh, the federal government wanted things to be a more have a more positive road for the Pacific Island uh, visa workers who are, you know, in the past have uh, done this seasonally, they would have contributed to the uh, medical systems in the Pacific Islands to move them from an orange zone to a green zone uh, system, which is really interesting, isn't it? Very simple and practical. Well, that's. I mean, that, this is part of it. I mean, things have been muffed so badly that the um, we are kind of scrambling in Australia to get our own Delta outbreaks under control, where when we look to some of our neighbours, you know, um, while they're not involved in the Pacific Labor Scheme, our know, friends in Indonesia have got 16,000 cases, new cases each day at the moment. It's still very, um, very difficult. Um, and the, And what I think we're talking about here is the ability to bring folks in um, at the moment requires largely on hotel quarantine. And uh, what what the government, uh, the Victorian government did a deal with the Tasmanian government, whereby um, the Tasmanian government would do hotel quarantine uh, for the seasonal workers uh, that were coming in for the season. Um, and then they would come from Tasmania into Victoria. Um, but what we're seeing is a real pressure on the, the nation's quarantine facilities uh, or the quarantine hotels because there aren't purpose-built quarantine facilities to make sure that, you know, people coming into this country um, can safely um, spend an isolation period before um, entering into the community. So, I mean, this is, again, blame-shifting from the federal government to those different state governments around the, um, around the country because they haven't done their job. They haven't provided... Um, we're now a very long way into this, um, and we know by looking around the um, the city how quickly buildings can go up. Um, we're now in the second year of this, this global pandemic, and we still don't have purpose-built quarantine facilities, which would alleviate some of these concerns. But to pick up your point, Annie, about the orange zone and the green zone, um, or the, you know, the different classifications of the different countries... What we've got is we've still got very low vaccination rates in some of the Pacific Island nations. Um, you know, for example, Vanuatu, which is a source of large, a large source of workers for the seasonal worker program, less than 10% of people there have had um, just one jab. Uh, jab. Yeah, and 
you know, what we would, what we, what we should be seeing as good neighbours is trying to help our um, Pacific Island nations and those around us and across all the world to to get their vaccine rates up, rather than as we did, um, have to buy a million doses off Poland. Um, I think, which, uh, to be honest, is a bit of an embarrassment to be taking um, <laughs> vaccines, which could be going into the arms of um, more developing nations. Um, Australia should be getting this right. We should have, you know, we should have got this right from the start. And then all of us that are in lockdown and all of us, uh, and you know, those farmers that need people to pick their fruit, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, but this is just another example of blame shifting from the federal government. Sounds uh, practically challenged. They're practically challenged. Oh, <laughs> there's a lot that I could say there, Annie, but I might get into a little bit of strife. I mean, they've got two jobs. Get quarantine right so that this, you know, so that the nation's um, protected from further spread and get vaccines into people's arms. And they haven't done either of those things. The important thing to know is that while we, you know, we, we're on the right track now getting more vaccines into people's arms, we're only a quarter of the way through the Greek alphabet. Like there are, there could be any <laughs> number of different, <laughs> there could be any number of new variants that, that have vaccine breakthroughs. So, this is a race, but it's not just a race inside the borders of Australia. It's a global race. We need to get as many people in across the entire world vaccinated so that we can put this behind us. It's not just a matter of we're all right, we'll, we get to 70 or 80% uh, in Australia and then we're going to be fine. That's not the way this works. We, it's an absolutely global challenge and we need to show solidarity with our not just Pacific Island um, neighbours, but our you know our international friends and, and comrades across the entire world. Yeah, chuck individualism out of your knapsack and get on with the business. That's it. Neoliberalism kills, and that's what we're seeing. When we're seeing the chickens come home to roost, unfortunately, for a number of nations that um, that are really kind of pushing the wrong line on this and, and aren't taking a, a broader approach. Thanks for talking to me this morning, Matt. No worries. Thanks, Annie. Hi, I'm Bridget Allen. I'm Malantini. I'm Jake Hamill. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, I thought we'd proceed on the uh, another part of I uh, know oh this is COVID we're blanketed in COVID so I thought I might do the investigation and uh, one of the positive things that uh, came out last week was a explanation from a person called Murray Kittering who's the uh, principal of a, a school in Bankstown in New South Wales a high school. And he gave a fantastic description on this uh, thing from uh, the the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, explaining how his school dealt with uh, the onslaught of uh, COVID and uh, kids having to work at home. And they're not a very rich school, so this was uh, how they they dealt with it. Murray Kitteringham is the principal of Sir Joseph Banks High School in southwest Sydney, a low socioeconomic status high school where 82% of students are from language backgrounds other than English. Murray has lead managed the school for six years and has overseen some key changes, including ensuring the school's vision of excellence, opportunity, innovation and success reflect the aspirations of the community and replacing the school rules with values, think, respect, learn to teach the behaviours we want to see. 
Sir Joseph Banks High School is among the highest growth high schools in the state. And over the last seven years, 100% of students have been on an ATAR pattern of study with 60% of year 12 having attained university placement. Welcome, Murray. Thanks, so I'm going, to, I'm going to kick it off with you, Murray. You get the first question. And I want you to talk a bit about your experience, obviously, as principal of a low SES high school and what role technology is currently playing in teaching lessons and providing feedback to students. Yeah, well, well Verity, um, just a little bit of context. Our school's in um, Bankstown, so we're one of the lockdown LGAs. And um, I guess the journey that we've been on over the last four years, it's, it's not been something that just happened recently, has been um, one that was partly fortuitous when COVID first lockdown uh, came around. Um, I guess I just wanted to include um, the broader audience because uh, I wanted to come at it from slightly from an infrastructure point of view to start with. Um, you know, when you're beginning from ground zero, you're in a low SES community and you want to get the devices in the hands of, of every single student. Um, obviously, that costs a lot of money and it can't happen overnight. Um, so what we decided to do um, was to um, adopt a growth strategy and start with Year 7 first. Um, and it was not only growth of the devices, but it was growth of um, our teachers' um, professional learning uh, that we could um, make, uh, make mistakes uh, in a smaller uh, capacity before we expanded them right across the school um, and really get a, a handle on how we were going to actually use these devices. Uh, we decided to go with Chromebooks because um, they didn't have a, hard, a large hard drive on them and as soon as you open them, they work straight away so you don't have time lagging and logging on. Um, and we gave every single student a laptop and tied it into um, their voluntary fee. Um, so uh, the voluntary fee, if you pay your voluntary fee, um, then you're paying off your laptop. And that's how we sort of financed um, a BYOD in a low SES community. Uh, and what we found pretty quickly um, was that the kids were turning up with devices um, and the teachers weren't able to actually plan overnight every single lesson online. Um, and that's where we had that divide between we've got the devices here, they're walking through the door with those devices. Um, what are we going to do to make sure that we can um, give our staff that professional learning and bring everyone on the journey together? And I guess the challenges that we face um, in all schools is that um, we've got digital natives walking through the doors with these devices in their hands. Um, and we've also got um, digital dinosaurs. And, and I would include, I'm a Gen, Gen X person. Um, you know, it's taken a lot of learning for me to understand how we can actually um, learn together. Uh, and as a school, um, I was really proud of the fact that our staff were uncomfortable, but they were willing um, to take on the challenge and could see the value in that. And it did come with quite a few complications um, about, about developing that capacity across our staff. Um, but what we did do um, was roll out the professional learning. And each year as we went by, we found ourselves at the start of lockdown last year with half of our school, year seven, eight, nine, with devices. Um, people were using them uh, better and better as the years went by, and then COVID hit. Um, and if we've got, I guess, um, the silver lining in the dark cloud that is COVID, and we're always looking for, um, you know, some positive and opportunity that's come out of something that's um, such a negative for so many, is that this has really launched um, so many schools into the next level that um, they otherwise wouldn't have without COVID happening. Um, all of a sudden, you know, we were given very short notice, all schools were given very short notice to, to go into remote learning. Um, we were in a position where half the school had devices, but as you mentioned in your introduction, 30% of the community 
um, you know, half our school didn't have devices, but 30% of the community are, um, is an accurate reflection of people not having internet at home. So what we did was um, we beg, borrowed, stole, um, perhaps a little less of the stealing, um, but ABCN, um, the universities have come in, um, businesses had donated and we used our equity funding and we got the devices in the hands of the rest of the school. Um, and that way we were able to go 100% online um, and focus on what those structures look like. Um, I guess with the teaching and learning, um, that was the biggest challenge is how, how do we bring our whole staff onto Google Classroom that, um, you know, we're typing with two fingers like me. Um, and how do we bring them into that um, the, the fold of this is what um, technology, digital learning, online learning looks like um, in a very short period of time. I think that we, um, and I'm just being very open and honest, I think that all schools really struggle with that. Um, you, know, you know, we're much better at it this time around. Um, but we, we did get to the point where we were delivering lessons through the Google Classroom predominantly. Um, uh, but we also use Microsoft Teams to a lesser degree. Um, there were some people that were more confident in that area. Um, and we got that learning on, uh, online and running um, pretty well. And, and this is where the real gains were made, though. Um, one, once we came back from lockdown, um, we decided we weren't going to look back. Um, we decided that we've gone to all of this trouble to move online. Um, yes, we fumbled. Um, yes, we, um, we learned how to do screencasts. We learned how to embed things um, in, into um, the, the Google Classroom and Microsoft Teams so kids didn't have to print off things. You know, if you're printing things off and then taking photographs and up, uploading things, it's very clunky and it doesn't really work. Um, but we learned how to do that as a school. And then we continued face-to-face. -face. Um, so when the kids came back, we said, you know what, we're not going back. Um, we're not going to go back to textbooks and worksheets. We're going to do online learning face-to-face. -face. And that's where um, we were able to use, um, you know, the time in between last lockdown and this to really build upon the structures that we had. Um, our year seven uh, started with a connected curriculum, um, 18 of our one-hour periods per 50-period cycle. Uh, we're with Year 7 using Microsoft Teams um, every single uh, lesson and all of their learning was online um, and we learned a lot more about how to embed uh, learning into that platform. I guess if you're looking for a pathway forward, though, and, and, and from what we've learned from this, um, Google Classroom is a great place. It's got many features, but it, it operates like a feed, like a Facebook feed um, where the learning can drop down. Um, it's terrific for people like myself that can get on and navigate their way fairly quickly. Um, but Microsoft Teams absolutely is, um, I, I believe, and our staff feedback has been the, um, the, the potential for using uh, OneNote and it operates more like a book um, where you can turn the pages and you, and you can bookmark things. Um, the features on, um, on Microsoft Teams are that much more powerful um, once you become more comfortable with that um, platform. So, look, lots of opportunities there um, for differentiation. Um, the teachers are putting screencasts, um, embedding screencasts into their um, lessons, and that frees them up when they're face-to-face -face, uh, to be able to let their kids go on independently, um, learn asynchronously in the classroom, and then they can go around and move across other students um, and, um, you know, give the attention to where that's needed when we're face-to-face. -face. But it's an authentic flipping of the classroom and that also operates right now when we're in remote learning online. Um, we've set up a whole infrastructure. Our whole school is online. Um, we would prefer to be face-to-face, -face, but we can operate as a school because of the advances we've made, um, I guess, in that downtime to building that um, platform, 
creating the website um, and linking that learning into a broader platform. We're about to bring SharePoint on. Um, I know many schools have gone down that pathway, but that's our next step in the adventure. So. Ask me for a clue And I will always tell you true Listen with your words Hi, I'm Sarah from Dash and you're listening to 3CR. It's true It's safer when I'm here with you It's true A week solidarity, Bricky Team Listen, when it took just two weeks for this week. Uh, let me explain that. Two weeks ago, when we reported on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if there is such a thing, we praised big, big fossil wood side with profits, among other fossils, for suggesting as a response that the government provide corporate welfare, well, even more corporate welfare for fossils beyond the actual amount of fossil power used. And this week, surprise, surprise, the government's Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, announced this brilliant new policy. We will provide corporate welfare for fossils beyond the actual amount of fossil power used. Gee, where'd that come from? Put simply in Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, coal will be paid to firm up the grid. What a brilliant response to a call for urgent action to prevent fossil pollution. Pay them to keep polluting, subsidise fossils. To even greater levels, far, far, far greater levels than the corporate fossils subsidise both the caring business class and socialist parties through generous donations so the parties can make important decisions like subsidising fossils. And don't forget that other minister responsible for coal, gas and other struggling industries, Keith Pitpony, announced a few weeks ago that renewable energy was now mature enough not to require any government support. Well, it's been around for a couple of decades, whereas poor old King Coal has only been around doing its bit for the environment for a few centuries. Clearly too immature to survive without a bit of support from the bloated, inefficient public purse. And don't forget, this is a government that says it's meeting its climate commitments in a canter. Let's hope it doesn't get into a gallop, or the world will end even sooner than it will under current policies. In one of those a bit more explanation might have helped comments, Angus asserted that providing even more corporate welfare to keep coal and gas-fired fossil power going longer and longer was the best way to encourage more investment in renewables. Angus, we wouldn't mind if you could give us just a little more detail on how that one works out. And we wish people for whom the frying of the planet is no business of theirs would mind their own business, like former European Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström speaking from Sweden Wednesday at a virtual forum hosted by the True Blue Aussie Institute, whose, the Institute, long-haired, commie, greenie bias is notorious. The big supremo scuttled them more less than a.k.a. scomo government was becoming more and more isolated over its carbon policy, she raved. Why would anyone think that? Obviously, obviously oblivious to or refusing to accept the magnificent way we are meeting our target in a canter. 
saying that because we refuse to tax or more correctly price carbon, True Blue Aussie will be subject to the carbon border adjustment taxes Europe plans to impose. Leading Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle and Minister for Capitalist Trade Dan T and Carbon to attack the proposal as protectionist. Uh, so you're against protectionism? Absolutely. Absolutely. Except when we are protecting coal and carbon. Look, I think Cecilia's just got it in for True Blue Aussie because she was the losing candidate when former Minister for the Capitalist Economy, Matthias Rotten Tudor, was appointed head of the OECD. And the long-haired commie mob make this ludicrous argument that if True Blue Aussie introduced its own carbon price, which former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses abolished and dismissed as a great big tax, a great big tax, because he knows climate change is crap, if the income would flow into True Blue Aussie coppers rather than European coppers or other nations considering imposing a levy on True Blue Aussie imports. And then, of course, True Blue Aussie would have more in the public coppers to provide corporate welfare for the fossils. Win-win. Meanwhile, Scummo and his team and New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berridge lock them in announced there was no need to lock them in because Scummo has a plan. A very good plan. A plan. You have a plan, don't you? I have a plan. A very good plan. A very, very good plan. So it's a plan. It is a plan this country can be proud of. See, Scuttle Them and Gladys are accepting the considered advice of the caring business class that we can all enjoy the pleasures of business as usual with COVID and the Delta strain running riot once enough of us have the jab. No need to reduce the number of infections, but a desperate need to reduce the impediments to business as usual. And they would make special arrangements for all those who catch the virus and special, special arrangements for all those who die. It puzzles me why anyone would go against a plan that has been so carefully prepared, he said, pulling a serviette covered in scribble and squiggles from his pocket to prove his point. But the coup de grace was delivered by our old mate Trubler was the industry profits group Supremo Innes will cost the workers, who explained just how much investment was not being invested because of these bloody lockdowns. We just have to learn to live with it, he made a strong argument. And we assume those who extol us to live with it don't see themselves as the ones being on the receiving end of the very, very special arrangements for those who die with it. Anyway, just in case it hasn't yet sunk in, Scummo has a plan. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden with capital, also has a plan for the smooth retreat from Afghanistan, having spent 20 years liberating the people and bringing them the delights of liberty, freedom and democracy. Matching scuttled them in the fabulous success of his plan of 20 years of slaughter and destruction, exemplified by all these poor desperates trying to flee the country, literally standing deep in shit, or raw sewage, as the mainstream media puts it much more nicely. And then, to put it nicely, that sewage hit the fan, the proverbial hit the fan, as one faction of Allah be praised, God willing 
blew up the desperates t- attempting to flee 20 years of liberation, along with members of another faction of LRB, praise God willing, and infidels, U.S. of trained killers, God bless America, all acting in the name of their respective gods and messiahs. Love thy neighbor. And Joe said, God bless America, would not forgive, would not forget, would hunt the LRB praise lot down without explaining how. A 20-year regression, slow, slow learners. And putting it not so nicely, former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Tiny Blyer, angrily described Joe's withdrawal as imbecilic. Look, if he wants some consolation, let's assure him, Tiny, it's nowhere near as imbecilic as the coalition of the killing invasion in the first place. Apparently, 20 years of slaughter and destruction wasn't quite enough slaughter and destruction for Tiny, who attacked the depoliticization of US of foreign policy. So obviously, when Tiny and the little bald-headed bloke, who used to be big supremo back here in those dark ages, followed then US of supremo George W. Bash the workers' orders to invade Afghanistan, because all these Saudis had upset the US of, there was nothing political about it. It's a common retort of those whose occupation is, in parenthesis, politician, isn't it, when anyone criticizes them. You're being political. You're, you're bringing politics into it. Clearly, politics has no place in politics. Speaking of, and speaking of plans, state-caring business class supremo brackets temporary and would-be big state supremo Michael Dobrain said he would promise a plan for hope. And spot on, it's already worked, Michael, because we're all hoping, and pretty confidently too. Maybe that's what he means. He hopes. He wins. Before that, he's got a hope. He's still there. Michael's the bloke with the robotic button inserted into his chest, which, when pressed, repeats, this is not good enough, 123 times. Although he attacked the pejorative Dan government for the not good enough state debt, whose repayments, he said, could fund lots of nurses and teachers. Uh, So you oppose the state providing support for caring businesses during lockdown, Michael? Certainly not. The level of support is, as he reads for his chest, not good enough. It must be increased. Uh, but, but, But all that corporate welfare is a major contributor to the debt. And that debt is not good enough. Uh, then which one do you support? I don't follow. Your question is, hang on, at this Michael reached for his chest again, not good enough. Finally, also not good enough, these bloody maritime workers taking strike action just because their caring employers won't budge on the need to slash their wages, conditions, overtime payments, increased casualisation, that sort of thing, with the caring employers attacking the irresponsible evil unions for causing disruption during a pandemic, depriving the community of vital goods, showing how the caring employers are so community-minded, while the evil unions... Well, what can we say? Clearly, it is the workers' fault that the poor caring employers won't negotiate. The disruption, nothing whatever to do with them. They, poor dears, just want a non-level playing field. Good morning. Well, it's the P.I. boy from Palm Island.
Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and I suppose that's a good reminder for anybody who uh, donated during the Radiothon to uh, uh, honour your commitment, honour your commitment. And uh, another part of it is to uh, tell you that uh, we do actually uh, bring to the voices of people who are in struggle. And uh, Chris Breen's on the line, he's from Refugee Action Collective. G'day Chris, how are you? Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, during COVID, of course, uh, the anguish of uh, people who have been held in captivity effectively for being refugees, asking for refuge in Australia, continues, doesn't it? Uh, sadly, it does. Um, there were another 33 people who were released, uh, Madivac refugees from... 15 from the Park Hotel in Melbourne last week, uh, which is certainly a, a positive sign. But I think there's still around 80 who are held nationally in arbitrary and indefinite detention, and the government has never explained the difference between the people released and the people still there who are despairing about why it's not them at this stage. So so they need to, um, they, they need to be freed. Um, and there's thousands of refugees in the community on temporary visas, bridging visas, who are in a form of indefinite limbo as well. And um, this Sunday, uh, the Refugee Action Collective, together with a range of uh, refugee communities, um, particularly the uh, Afghan and, and Iranian communities, has come together to call a, um, a rally, well, it's an online rally, for... Uh, to welcome Afghan refugees and for permanent visas, uh, which will be 2 o'clock uh, this Sunday. You can find the details on our Facebook or our website. Uh, we're expecting over uh, 400 people to come along, including um, uh, Labor MP Andrew Giles, um, Shadow Minister for Multicultural Affairs, and Adam Bant, uh, the leader of the Australian Greens. Yeah, that's a that's a good mix. And uh, just before you do, we continue to talk about that. Uh, is there how many people are still left in the Park Hotel in Melbourne? Um, the I'd, I'd be it'd be around. I thought there was a little. There was probably about forty. So it, it, oh, really? it'd be around twenty left. Um, would be I. I'm not. 100% sure on that figure, I'd have it's, to check it. It's quite but, bizarre, isn't it? It's like a leaking tap. They just, I mean, what is... Yeah, no, they keep they keep shifting people around. There weren't that many. Then they brought a, a number of people down from Sydney. They released people. It's, sometimes it's hard to keep track of the, when did they the bring movement them down and the arbitrary Sydney? nature of it all. When, when did they bring them down from Sydney, for God's sake? Uh, that was... Um, my two it wasn't too long ago in the last month. I would oh say. my god! Goodness me! In, yeah. in in a lockdown, a COVID lockdown. Uh, yes, yes, during lockdown. Fair goodness! It's interesting because there's these broad brush 
um, statements coming out of these press conferences and then you discover these, you know, details from people's lived lives and you sort of think, goodness, that doesn't tally and that's exactly what doesn't tally here. No, it doesn't. Yeah. So uh, what what's the running, um, I mean, normally you'd be having a, a proper rally out in the streets, but of course of COVID you, you can't. So um, on, online does have some of its, uh, some uh, usefulness because it means that you can bring a collection of speakers that may not have been able to do it live. That's true, isn't it? Um, yes, that is that is true. Uh, we're doing it. It was originally going to be an in-person rally, and then because of lockdown, it has to be online. Um, I do think that there are safe ways to protest during COVID. Um, some of which that the you know RAC has tried in terms of having people masked and socially distanced and car convoys. Uh, you know, unlike some of the the, the right-wing um, protests <laughs> we've seen recently. Uh, but because of the oppression, that's just not possible at the moment, the, the huge fines. Uh, and so we are doing online protest. It does have a use. It's it's not the same as it doesn't, it's not as visible as protest in the streets. Uh, but nonetheless, it does add to the pressure on Prime Minister, uh, you know, Scott Morrison, to increase the intake of um, Afghan refugees, you know, it gives heart to the people who take um, part. I mean, we, we saw with the horrific bombing in uh, Kabul uh, yesterday that killed at least 85 people, that just underlines that Afghanistan um, isn't safe. Uh, but, you know, Prime Minister Morrison wants to keep Afghan refugees on temporary uh, visas. He won't match Canada's offer to, to resettle uh, 20,000 uh, refugees. Uh, so, you know, we are having the, the protest to press for permanent visas and to, to press for an intake of 20,000, which is also above the humanitarian intake. The, the, the 3,000 that Morrison's offered come out of the existing uh, 13,000 places. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? That that, that is so uh, impoverished. <laughs> Australia is looking pretty poor. Yeah, I mean, particularly when you consider the the responsibility that it has Australia has had for creating the situation. You know, it's fleeing with its guns and tanks, but other people are you know saying no. The, the doors are shut. The official channels uh, are, are shut. Um, you know, and it's it's saying that too to people. Uh, who are already in Australia. There are, you know, 4,300 Afghan refugees in Australia on temporary uh, visas um, whose lives are permanent. Libo, they can't get um, a family reunion. Uh, they can't get uh, citizenship. Uh, there are more are still stranded in Indonesia by the coalition's ban on taking any refugees via um, Indonesia. Uh, you know, that needs to end as well. And there are thousands more from other refugee communities, you know, from Iran, from Sri Lanka, from Iraq, from other places in, in very similar um, situations, uh, let alone that there are there are still uh, three Afghan uh, medivac refugees who've got no official channels um, and 53 other Afghan refugees that are in detention uh, around Australia. Yeah, this is another version of uh, them being uh, practically challenged. <laughs> They're practically indeed. challenged. In, indeed. Yeah. Um, so let's just go through the details of the uh, online uh, rally tomorrow. Uh, it is 
2 o'clock uh, tomorrow. It's via Zoom. Uh, you can find the Zoom link uh, either on the Refugee Action Collective uh, Facebook page. It's also on a range of other... Uh, the event is co-hosted by a range of other groups, the Hazara Shamama Association, uh, Solidarity with Asylum Seekers in Australia, Refugee Voices. Um, and you can find those details there on the Refugee Action Collective uh, website. Uh, there's a range of speakers that will be chaired by uh, two women. There's a tenor who is a junior taekwondo champion and Iranian refugee who's been on bridging visa for about eight years. Um, she's not allowed to travel out of Victoria to compete. Um, and uh, there is uh, a woman from the uh, Afghan community. We've got other speakers from the Afghan community. There's a speaker from the border area in Afghanistan, uh, speakers from the Iranian community, a guy from the Park Hotel who was released uh, just last week, and as I said, um, Andrew Giles and Adam Bant. Um, and we will try and have some actions for, for people to take to share things on social media. We'll see if we can do a, a chant online with, you know, all 400 people. Um, so please, please uh, come along. Thanks for talking to me this morning, Chris. Okay, thanks for having me on. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Where in that cosby sweater 
dance when I rumble. The old call me champ, but the jungle is fitting. I'ma get drunk and dance like your uncle till I'm all hands like your uncle. I'm kidding. The venom is in venom when I enter, then it's over. When I'm spinning venom, I'm as generous as Oprah. You get a scar, you get a scar, you get a scar. Me drunk in the back of a rental car. Pat Benatar, blood loves a battlefield. Here to get you where you see like a battle drill. I'm in the saddle still, a little saddle sore. Smash you out the stratosphere, flashy as a matador. When I'm just like feels that be the Gucci, listening to Gucci rap. I won't beat around the bush like a '70s porn. I make you wish that you'd never be born. And it's all good. I'll turn the art form into a blood sport. I make peace soup out of a pea brain. They wanna run this street slide parkour. I'd rather run these tracks like a steam train. Like a steam train. Steam train. Back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got uh, Janet Burstall on the line. And uh, Janet is from Living Incomes for Everybody. G'day, Janet. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Annie? Good, and uh, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us. Uh, life has got uh, is uh, well known for its uh, collaborative efforts as well as its. Uh, uh, interesting approaches to political action. So next week you've got a very interesting uh, press conference uh, c- going to take place. Can you explain to our listeners what this is all about? Uh, yes, sure. Um, look, this press conference uh, came out of uh, an event that was held by the Greater Sydney branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and the AUWU is one of the uh, groups that endorses the last campaign and we work together. Uh, they held a forum on the 10th of August called Workers Won't Pay for the Crisis, Pandemic Poverty and Resistance. And uh, uh, the speakers at that forum um, were mainly workers who've been affected by uh, the New South Wales government's approach to the pandemic. And by the way, employers are responding. And... Uh, even I, I feel relatively well informed on on these issues, but uh, the stories from um, these workers and unionists were not getting airplay, and so we decided after the forum that we would try to get across their point of view and their experience by having a press conference that was an antidote to the daily New South Wales government 
uninformative press conferences. Yeah, yeah. So give us an idea of uh, uh, what kind of stories the people were telling at this forum. Well, a United Workers' Union organiser told us about uh, a Coles uh, distribution centre in in Western Sydney where once a COVID case was discovered, management just wanted to continue uh, without interruption and the union had to get the workers together to insist on suspending the shifts to allow for deep cleaning of the site and to allow everybody to get tested and uh, establish what would be safe conditions for returning to work. Yeah. So that was yeah. that was a union effort that made a difference. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, this mantra about we're all in it together is quite clearly a falsehood. Uh, very much so. Um, uh, I, 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 a, a particular example and that I just was in the paper in the Sydney Morning Herald this week that um, I, I wanted to share actually is um, you know the, the New South Wales government went to all this effort to reopen construction and and the government says that the main transmission places are workplaces and households. It's quite clear that workers are picking up. COVID at work and bringing it back to their household members. So uh, there's this, there's three very tragic stories based on that that have been used for um, a Sydney local health district video that's now being shown on TV. Um, one is a construction worker, one is um, a pharmacy worker, and another is a tradesman. And they're all people who've been required to work in the pandemic. And the government reopened construction and trades deliberately because the construction industry uh, jumped up and down about it. Possibly tradespeople did too because they weren't getting an income. And so these each of these people has their whole family in hospital um, and some in intensive care. Uh, and it's the, the government says they're trying to control the pandemic, but they're forcing people to work who shouldn't have to. Oh, but also, I guess, uh, not taking appropriate measures. You know, people, you know, that you can be uh, flippant about wearing your mask, that you can, you know, it's okay uh, to do that outside with uh, because we're outside, that sort of stuff. You know, uh, denying that there is a, uh, an understanding of the distribution of uh, germs and you need to apply yourself to uh, regimes to reduce risk. Yeah, well, and in some cases, it's the employ- it should be the employer's responsibility to ensure a safe workplace, and and that's clearly what hasn't been done, and the government doesn't apply any pressure to uh, employers to do that. Um, you know, Sally McManus put out a, a statement on Twitter that um, you know you have the right to refuse to perform work that endangers your health, and. Uh, she says, in Sydney, there's a public health order to only work outside of home if essential. Union members will be supported if they refuse work for this reason. I mean, I think all workers should be supported, whether they're union members or not, for refusing to work for this reason. And I think it's it's really takes workers organising health and safety demands at work placed on the employer uh and, and the government is not backing that or encouraging that. And that's another reason for having this alternative press conference. I guess it's about... Because, re- oh, sorry, go on. 
No, to go, go on, sorry. I was going to say, uh, it re-establishes the uh, fact that actually society is more than economy. Uh, economy is important, but it's there as a, a, a tool of society. Uh, well, that would be ideal, but it clearly isn't the case uh, in, the, in the society we live in. Um, it's, it's all about... It's all about keeping uh, money flowing um, into the into the owners and operators of, of uh, the means of production, if you like. Um, so, uh, well, well, I was going to say that uh, going to your press conference would be a mental health uh, uh, um, help. You know what I mean, like a, a, a service, because. Uh, I agree with you about the New South Wales uh, press conferences. They are just like swimming through effluence. I mean, one of the things that's most frustrating, there are many things that are frustrating about them, but one of them is that it doesn't matter what question. You can see the journalists um, developing and honing their questions, you know, as each each day the government avoids, the government spokespeople avoid answering the questions. The journalists are trying to get more and more focused and specific to avoid that, but it doesn't matter what they ask. The, the spokespeople for the government just keep repeating things that are not even answers to the question. You know, just just uh, they latch onto one word and talk about the topic. Uh, so they won't, they're not being honest about what's happening and where it's going. They change their line from week to week, um, apart from all their efforts to blame. Uh, individuals, they're not taking responsibility for their decisions. So uh, that's another factor that is so frustrating. But they're also blaming individuals and, and not taking responsibility for what is needed to stop workplace transmission because it's clearly workplace transmission that's sending back into households and families. And and, oh, and if employers yeah. won't take responsibility, the government isn't taking responsibility to call them out. So the press conference is Tuesday, the thirty-first of August, next Tuesday, two to two thirty p.m. How do people get That's the right. Zoom uh, link um, and live stream to fa- Facebook? Right. Okay. So we're giving basically the Zoom link um, to uh, the press participants and our panelists, and and um, we will be putting the event um, live stream to Facebook on on the uh, live Facebook page. Um, uh, we, I'm sorry, we don't have it there just yet, but um, it, it will be there uh, for by people the end of on, the weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, living, uh, living incomes for everybody. Uh, that's the Facebook page. And thank you very much, Janet, for taking some time this morning to to alert us to the alternative press conference. Thank the, you very much, Annie. No thank worries, you for having mate. us on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, that is the end of the show. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We had lots of people on this morning. Uh, if you want to catch up with us, you can do the podcast. We're on Spotify or iTunes, or you can go to the website at 3CR. Uh, we're going to go out with uh, You're Going to Miss Me, Radio Birdman.
Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.